This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Dr. Anne Reutberg-Taylor, the author of Seven Ancient Rituals to Heal Modern High-Functioning Anxiety. Why is it that an overwhelming majority of doctor visits are due to stress, 75 to 90 percent, and yet most of us are never taught how to manage the stressors in our lives? When stress becomes chronic, it can manifest into high-functioning anxiety and stress-induced depression. These are not clinical levels of disease, rather a reaction to today's modern world. Anxiety is a normal reaction to stress and can serve us in challenging situations. Anxiety raises a red flag that something is wrong. It alerts us to dangers and helps us prepare to mobilize to safety. When this early warning system remains on high alert throughout the day, we have a problem that affects our health, happiness, and well-being. High-functioning anxiety is not a clinical condition, yet it's exhausting and impacts your health and well-being. Anxiety is your body's natural response to prolonged exposure to unmanaged stress. When you always feel like the other shoe is about to drop, your anxiety can be triggered. What can we learn about stress and anxiety from wisdom traditions that practiced ancient rituals? New paradigms in healing high-functioning anxiety will involve more than talk therapy. The body has to get into the healing act and ancient ritual practices do just that. Dr. Ann Taylor's current work resulted from an alchemical process combining her scientific background mythological-slash-depth psychological academic work and applied consciousness of kundalini yoga. As a former senior director of research and development for an international cardiac monitoring device corporation, clinical chemist and hematology technology experience, with her academic research as a mythologist, emphasis on depth psychology, infused with kundalini yoga philosophy and teaching experience. Anne specializes in the psychosomatic connection of the heart and brain and the technology of kundalini yoga as applied consciousness. Anne holds a BS in medical biology from SUNY and a PhD in mythological studies with emphasis in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She is a member of the 3HO Global Foundation. To learn more about Dr. Anne, please visit her website, howtorelievestressnaturally.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Anne Reutberg-Taylor.
In your own words, who is Anne Rutberg Taylor? Well, that's an interesting question. I think first and foremost, I believe that I am a spiritual being having a very human experience. And it's been quite a journey, as it is for most people. Mm. I love that answer and the clarity and the truth behind it, as I understand life to be. Before we talk about some of the topics in your book, Seven Ancient Rituals to Heal Modern High-Functioning Anxiety, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned, off-record. So the first one is, what does it mean to be a human being? Well, to be a human being, first of all, in my opinion, is the highest gift that one could ever receive. It's an opportunity to be in this body, in this moment of time, to really bloom into our our highest nature. And I really do think that's what we're called to do. When you say highest nature, do you mean a spirit being realizing that we are that spiritual being that you mentioned before? Yes. Well, I think on, on all three levels, our highest physical potential, which I think is required to get into our highest spiritual potential, and also our hi- highest psychological potential. And that's going to be unique for everyone, but everyone has their highest and best self that I believe it's a journey to get into that being that we're called to be. When we are balanced with all those three components of who we are, I'm wondering what that looked like. What's the manifestation of that? I believe it manifests itself in um, a feeling of being at ease with the world, where one is beginning to flow with nature, flow with the deep intelligence of the universe and just being a part of it instead of the constant struggle against life itself. I will tap into a topic that you mentioned in your book that I find to be very interesting. What is the mind? What are thoughts? And how does the heart think? Yeah, that's a big question. But I believe that thoughts are generated from the mind and that It's very different from what the heart is generating. As many leading spiritual thinkers teach in many religions, is that our thoughts are not part of us. They come to us, but they are not us. That if we can quiet the mind, the thoughts will naturally quiet too. And that's when we can really tap into the thought of the heart, if you will. And you know, scientists have now found that there are neural networks within the heart itself so that there's a physical heart brain. But I also believe what the ancient traditions understood is that there's a point in the heart. It's, it's not part of the physical heart. It's part of the subtle and spiritual heart that actually is a connection point to the infinite, to the divine, to God, whatever you want to call the infinite source. And it's, it's, a, it's an infinite way of being in this world, of tapping into unending wisdom that I think few of us have really understood in the modern age. And it's something that came so natural to our ancestors and to the ancient ones 
And part of my journey is to really help people connect back to the, their hearts and, and see that wisdom that's right there. And I think it's really the solution to so many of our problems that we have that, that can't be addressed with the mind at this stage. In a way, you separate the mind from the heart. And I'm wondering what the mind is. Is it outside of the body or it is in the brain, as most of us think? Well, that, you know, that gets into um, a lot of definitions. Now, my background is Jungian based. So instead of mind, I might think of it as psyche. And that I believe is bigger than the human brain, as would be the mind, that we're in the mind, we're in the psyche, the psyche or the mind is not in us, is the way I view it. So we're being thought in a way. <laughs> yes. Beautifully put, the thoughts are are coming to us. Thinking us. <laughs> what a beautiful mystery. Even if we never get to really know what this whole thing called life really is and how it functions, it's just incredible when we feel connected to it, even though we don't have words to explain what it is. What is life to you? And what is your understanding of what life as a whole is. My understanding of what life is, is informed from an Eastern perspective. And that is that life, we are all of life, humans, any sentient beings, even rocks, the water. We are a manifestation of the divine energy. We are its physical form that has, has come into being. And you know, I've learned a lot through the Eastern traditions that actually take me back to my more Christian roots because so much of, I'm getting a little off topic here, forgive me, but so much of the information had, had been cut out. So the, the Eastern perspective is, it's very straightforward. And I, I think it's so beautiful to, to really embrace this incredible mystery of life. When we embrace everything, we know that we are part of life, not separate from it, then everything just flows. What is the opposite of life, in your opinion? There, is there such a thing? Well, aside from you know, death being the surface answer, I think that life is, the opposite of life is what T.S. Eliot would call the wasteland in his poetry. And that is really a life unlived, a life where you are just working at this, at the superficial level, going through the motions without really ever learning who you are and who you are in relation to the bigger whole. I, I think that that would be the opposite of life. I'm wondering why so many of us fail to access that knowledge, that wisdom of knowing who we really are. Do you have some ideas? I do. And I would... <laughs> You know, I think perhaps Joseph Campbell said it best, and that is, and so many of really all the wisdom traditions talk about the call. We're all called to live a higher life. And if you say no to it, that would be, again, the opposite of life. You don't have to do this journey. I think it's, it's scary. It's to say yes to the journey of life means that at some point you have to surrender to life. And basically, you know, a part of you is going to have to die. 
the the ego part of us that likes to think it runs the show and for for most people and you know many times for myself still if the ego is running the show um we're not really living that deeper essence of living from who we are and uh, quite honestly I, I don't think most people or many people i shouldn't say that because it's certainly changing by the day i mean so many people are waking up but it's difficult it's frightening and it's you have to really it's something you have to want very deeply yes and commit to it so true i love the way you said that at some point we will have to surrender to life give ourselves to life what do you think is the main purpose of the human experience the main purpose of being human in my opinion is to bloom into that higher purpose that we talked about at the beginning of the call and you know it's been called the acorn is that the acorn has a destiny to grow into the oak tree it's not destined to become a peach tree similarly as human beings each one of us has our own potential inside that needs to be nourished to grow into our own version of the oak tree and i do think that that's the purpose of what we're here on this earth plane to do do you believe in the soul's journey in surviving the body and mind continuation absolutely i do think that our life here is is just the visible portion of a continuum that will go on and has gone on it seems to me from my own experience that that continues but and also feels like that's part of the ego because the ego is separate so it needs to be certain and wants to continue to survive the body move on so i'm wondering if that is connected still to a higher ego mind i think it's possible and that many people treat it that way uh if i do x y and z i'm going to get into okay, heaven right, right. I, i mean that to me is like kindergarten um <laughs> uh ignorance for me the great thinkers such as plato which is in the jungian tradition that's one of the precursor uh philosophers and certainly in all of the world's religions is that there's a continuation of the soul but i i particularly like plato's view because just real briefly what what he says is the spindle of necessity is we choose what family to incarnate into so that we can most appropriately learn our soul lessons and that so that i i do believe it goes beyond the ego because such fine minds throughout the history of the world have talked about a soul and a continuation and it's also best i think not so much to focus on it we need to do our lessons in the here and now and if we're looking for some reward system afterwards yes that's the ego interfering into the into the whole process so i have my next question i guess relates directly with this idea what is your idea about freedom what is to be free to you and this is a beautiful question it's probably the one i'm working on the most these days to me freedom is the ability to not have a preference or you may have a preference to an outcome but to learn to detach from the results of what you're doing 
that would include, so in other words, let's say, you know, I, I wrote this book. I really believe that part of what I'm doing is to speak the truth of what I know to the best of my ability and be a witness and then let go of the results to not necessarily um, care in a sense uh, what happens after I release it. It's not to say you don't do some diligent effort, but it, it not to let things either get overinflated, you know, whoopee, this is becoming a wonderful success or the opposite where it just falls. To learn to just move through life and say, that's interesting. Just, I guess it's the middle path going through duality. And that includes things that are more difficult, at least for me, including what do people think? Every, I think the more that one speaks out about their truth, you know you're gonna have objections and resistance coming at you. Uh, and can you really sit with it and not let it affect you. So freedom is, it's really rising above all of that in my mind. I love your answer. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, yes. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? And do you have a vision for a new reality? I think the world's greatest need, and this is the focus of all of my work, is for people to connect to that heart center. Uh, and coming out of that Western scientific mind, at least for you know a few minutes a day, and really connect with the heart that will open up compassion for ourselves, and so that we may be compassionate with one another on this planet. I, I think it's one element of what's needed for the world to heal. And I think that uh, if we can grow our own compassion, And in the book, I talk about why compassion gets suppressed when we get stressed, but uh, just opening up the element of compassion, love for ourselves, which we need before we can share it with others is so needed right now. A lot of times we connect the heart to uh, emotions and more often than not, romantic ideas. So I have to ask you this question. What is love to you? I think love is God, quite honestly. Love is the divine intelligence expressed in human existence. There's many kinds of love. There's motherly love. There's brotherly love. There's romantic love. But above, even above that, there is love that's the highest vibration that perhaps we can achieve as human beings. And it's, I think it's nothing short of the divine. Yes. What, where, and who is God to you? Um, yeah, that's it's a it's a term that's has gotten really a bad rap. To me, God is an infinite intelligence. It is not a he. She. It's not a, a, in a human form. It's it's infinite beyond description. I believe it's the force that pushes the universe to evolve, and it's expressing itself every day through manifestation in the world. And uh, that's what it means to me. Is God everywhere? Would you say that? I I would say God is between every atom, everywhere, yes. What is your understanding and idea of peace? Peace is the ultimate surrender, but I do not mean that in in a way that is in any way weak. It is Again, it's an, it's another vibrational energy. I guess I think in frequencies, bear with me, <laughs> yeah, uh, of, a very, of a very high level. 
And to get into these higher frequencies, you know, when we say raise our vibe, you know, peace and love are going to be way at the, at the top of the spectrum. And to get into those higher vibrational states requires that surrender we talked about. And to really let the, all the noise, the ripples in the pond settle so that our heart connects with the universal heart. And at that point, we have peace. I love that. Yeah, this connection with the universe's heart. Do you connect surrender to acceptance and letting go? Are they all the same in a way? That, that is part of it. I, I think when I really realized, I've done a lot of writing about heart attack survivors. And I, I spent a good, am- t- a good amount of my time in my youth watching people die of heart attacks because of the nature of the work I was in. And when people come out of an experience like that, now it could be cancer, it could be other things, but this, the heart has been my focus. It's like there is a break before the person can transcend to the next level. It's really an acceptance that the ego doesn't have the final answer. To surrender to that is the beginning of life, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. How do we know when we are accepting, letting go, but not giving up? Yeah, there's an inner peace that happens because it's, you know, there's, there's a, a beautiful metaphor in the Bhagavad Gita, which is an ancient Indian piece of literature where the famous um, warrior Arjuna is representative of the ego. And he's controlling the horses of the chariot. And, and it's, it's, it's when we really can get, um, get our senses under control. It's, it's, it's giving into something bigger than itself. So that when I release control of my ego, I'm tapping into something so much more powerful. So it, it's letting go of the superficial and tapping into an ultimate reality of where you're going to find your true power. And when you, when you are in that zone, uh, you will feel remarkable peace and calm and centeredness. And I think that's how you know right, yeah. how you're getting close to it. Yeah, that resonates. And that's interesting. You call it ultimate reality. And that's surrender to the unknown in a way, isn't it, Anne? Right. But you can, you can get, you brush up against it. You know, whatever your spiritual practice is, or, you know, for somebody that may mean walking in nature, where you're watching a sunset and you're, you're just stunned by the beauty. I mean, that, that is, in a sense, the letting go to something bigger. You're, you're, you're releasing yourself to, fully into the moment. Yeah. So let's talk about your work. How did you become a writer? That's a really good question. In midlife, I found that I was not, like many people, I, I had a lack of meaning. There was a lot of unfinished business in my life, and I felt I had, had not really even begun to tap into my potential. And so I went back to graduate school, actually, in my mid-50s. So when you know many of my colleagues were thinking about moving towards retirement in 10 years, it was like, I, I'm not even close to being done. I'm just really finding myself at that deeper level. So going to 
going back to graduate school and studying mythology and depth psychology, whereas my early training was all in the hard sciences, there was, it was all writing. It was all writing. And the more I wrote essays, the more I realized, I just really felt a voice deep with inside saying, you must witness what you're knowing. You, For some reason, I feel that I have access to some really lost ancient wisdoms and that it's time to bring these forward in the way I understand them. And that just simply requires writing and also speaking. And so that's what I'm dedicating my life to now. What was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, Seven Ancient Rituals to Heal Modern High-Functioning Anxiety? Well, what motivated me was I had been teaching like Kundalini Yoga for over 10 years. And you know, and I saw the results people were getting, including myself. It was life-changing. It's one path of many. I'm not saying it's the only one by any stretch. My early work, I have a very definite Western scientific mind that wanted to understand what was happening when I was doing certain postures or breath work patterns. And so, you know, I saw a correlation between give, satisfying the Western mind and also giving people easy, relatively easy techniques that they could do and actually measure how they were doing as far as um, their emotional states and their heart rhythms. So that that's, I, I just wanted to give people something relatively easy to digest. And I thought this was a good way to, to do it. So what is high functioning anxiety and High functioning anxiety is not actually, it's not going to be in the clinical books as far as a diagnosable disease. But what is, uh, what's happening is that so many people and predominantly women are finding that they are, they are having anxiety all of the time. And yet they're able to go through their daily routines. They're able to show up to work. They're able to get the kids wherever the kids need to be. And, and yet um, they're exhausted and it's, it has a numbing effect that many people, they're just, they're just putting the smile on and ready to collapse behind the scenes. So it's actually a term, if, if you were to Google high-functioning anxiety, there's a lot coming out about it. And part of the reason I like to focus on high-functioning anxiety is because it's, you know, a lot of people will get sick if they don't change something. And yet it's, so it's, you're catching something early enough before there's a physical symptoms, hopefully. And it's like a wake up call. It's your, your body needs to do, you need to do something to change your state of being. My next question would be the causes. What are the causes for that? The underlying cause is stress. And stress, when our bodies are in, chronic stress. Now, of course, we all need some degree of stress, but I think that most of the people listening can can relate to uh, not just now in the time of COVID-19 and all of the the problems that are going on as we're wakening up to our, our racial tensions and you know, just huge problems that are coming to the surface now. Even just the pace of our lives be, be quote-unquote normal terms that uh, there's just too much to do. We're in the informa information age. There's too much coming at us. 
and um, life is just too fast paced for most people. And it's, it's taking a toll. So it starts with stress. And so the way I understand stress is that it'll manifest in two ways. You'll either start getting anxious, like with racing um, blood pressure, with racing pulse and, you know, the high alert activities or stress can also lead you into depression, but it's anxiety is actually overtaking depression these days. So that's why I wanted to focus on anxiety. Many of the same things will apply to depression as well. I want to ask you a question that I didn't ask about Kundalini yoga. What is that? Most people don't know exactly what that is, including myself. Kundalini yoga is the yoga of awareness. And it is focused on more than just the physical postures or like a gym class style yoga. Although postures are part of it, the idea of yoga, going back to the ancient scriptures, means to yoke. That's the, that's the definition, yoking the higher nature with the lower nature or the ego. Yoking these things together, and that meaning has largely been lost. So Kundalini Yoga is one of the traditions that really does work on many levels to bring those two things back together again, the higher self and the small self. Yes. And so the yoga of awareness, and that, that's the main focus of right. it. And that changed. Yeah, you're right. I was interested in yoga a long time ago. I remember trying one or two classes and I felt this competition thing happening women competing with one another and focusing a lot on the body and the physical. And that kind of drove me away. Yeah, I don't, I don't allow that in my class. That is, that is an exercise class of stretching and egos at play. It's, it is to, when I teach, I really emphasize, allow the yoga to meet you where you're at. Honor and respect your body. And it will, it will do what it's going to do. It's amazing how it can heal itself if we don't treat it like, like we're whipping a horse. I mean, it's, we must be gentle with our bodies. And so my approach is maybe quite a bit different. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I would love to be part of your class then. Do you believe in the practice of unconditional self-love? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a tough journey we're on, and so many of us have had traumas in childhood. I, I don't think anybody can get out of childhood without a trauma. And our body doesn't always register the difference between, you know, maybe getting lost, you know, disconnected from your mother at the s supermarket or, you know, like a real bad trauma. That Those get lodged in your body and, and they kind of go underground or, you know, in the unconscious. and it, it takes a lot of patience, just like you would be, you know, training um, a, a little puppy or working with a toddler. You have to have patience. The same thing is true with us. If you can't be patient with yourself and love yourself unconditionally, I don't think you have the capacity to really give that to another human being. We cannot give what we don't have, right? Yeah. Continue with the highly functioning anxiety, the symptoms. What are the signs and well, a couple of symptoms might be something, you've got an impending sense of doom, like something bad is going to happen. The other shoe is going to drop. Uh, you might have uh, elevated heart rate, your heart rate or, you know, skip beats. 
You might notice that you're breathing shallow if you take the time to, to check in with your body. Always feeling tired, trouble sleeping, um, cyclical thoughts of worry, um, problems with your digestive system. And so those, so those are some of the things. And for a lot of people, that's just become the new normal. Didn't know that depression it was connected to anxiety. I actually didn't know. You mentioned in your book, stress induced depression. Yes, and again at the at the core root, it's it's an overstressed body and mind that can lead us into, and it can alternate. Sometimes people are in a high anxiety state, and if they calm down, they'll just sink into a depression. What are some of the methods to become more self-aware? I know you mentioned journaling questions. That was one of them. Right. I think the most immediate way to become self-aware that anybody could do at any time is by following your breath. You could be driving a car and your mind is a million miles away. And sometimes it's just good to you know, call it all back. And if you follow your breath, and really breathe deeply. You, you know, obviously you have your eyes open. You don't need to, we're not talking about breath work that's going to get you into a super relaxed, just following the breath. That'll bring you right back to your, to the now moment. And journaling is something if, if people can take the time uh, to ask yourself questions, even if you have no idea of, you know, what your big person, these were big things we talked about in the beginning. You know, what is my acorn? Just a, something as simple as that. And then your mind will, you, you, you'll begin to, to get insights. And so journaling, walk in nature. I think being connected back to nature, we are part of nature. And as we're in cities or, or too disconnected, uh, that can really interfere with our patterns at many levels. And so by simply walking, um, Preferably putting, you know, your hands or your feet on the ground directly to just, you know, get that energy from the earth. Um, those are very simple, free ways that you can become self-aware. Do you suggest meditation? Meditation is is one of the things that I do personally every day, and to it's it's an ongoing process where we we can start to raise our awareness level, and it's accumulative. But um, it's important to keep, you know, feeding that. And so a lot of people who first start meditating think, oh, I can't do this. But that's just the mind being busy. Everybody can meditate. And there's different styles for people to try. Uh, it could be walking meditation. Uh, it's, it's just something that's, um, it, it's a great gift. And, and it's free. Once you learn, just you could just learn one meditation and you, you'd be set. And sometimes it's just by staying silent for a few minutes and asking questions. I love the idea of asking questions to ourselves. That kind of opens up more possibilities. I love this, what you wrote here. You said ancient cultures understood the significance of people being aligned with the hearts and the higher order of the universe, especially when circumstances feel beyond their control. And then you also 
said this, ancient people used the ritual process to realign themselves with the universal order and to bring them back into a state of wholeness. It's the whole idea, it's really, it's going back to accessing what we already have, isn't it? And this inner wisdom is not even learning something new. Right. It is the remembering. It's, it, it is so um, embodied in us, these rituals. You really hit the kernel of my work because I, I think the best way to put it is another quote by Joseph Campbell. And the main purpose of our life, I'm just going to roughly quote it. I don't remember exactly. But the main purpose of life is to make our heartbeat match the beat of the universe, to match, to make our nature match nature. So when we're doing uh, these rituals or meditation, we are literally getting our heart into a rhythm, a rhythmic pattern that matches the earth's pattern. And this is all measurable, which in turn matches, you know, the suns. And it it's almost like Russian um, nesting dolls where each component is coheres with the next and you know our the organs of our body sync up with our heart our heart syncs up with the earth and it's a beautiful um it's something beautiful that the ancients just simply knew and the ritual practices will actually lead us back walk us back into that way of being in the world that made me think about something that i read to somewhere about this wisdom of nature that in its own rhythm and flow gets everything done. It doesn't have to rush. Right. And when we get to that still point, and in the book I call it the heart being in a state of Tao or this, the heart being in the state of flow, and it's, it actually generates a very rhythmic sine wave pattern, which in a 3D format, that would be a spiral. And when we're not in that flow, it's it's cha- it's a chaotic pattern, just like a radio, an old-fashioned radio dial. It's just getting in static, and so our heart is really that sensitive where we can tune it into the universe, or most of the time, most of us are out of tune, and everything's harder. You know, our bodily functions aren't harmonizing. We're not harmonizing on a person-to-person level, or even. You know, and it goes out from there to the communities, to the countries. And so um, it, it, the ramifications are huge. But you're right, that's still point where everything happens and there's no effort. I made a note here about the masculine and feminine energies and their attributes. You mentioned in your book, too, and this is a subject that's a very interesting subject to me. And I think a lot of people, would you talk to me about these energies and how we balance them within us? Yes, the balance of the masculine and feminine energy is central to this work. And on the physical level, the masculine and feminine would show up as the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, kind of the fight or flight, that masculine energy, the aggressive when needed, the assertive, and the feminine, which is the rest and digest. And what happens when our bodies are stressed is we stay in this masculine mode, the go, 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 fight or flight. And that that rest and digest, it has to get put on hold because the purpose of, 
of this is to save our life. Our body thinks it's trying to save our life. And at a more than subtle level, you know, bringing, I love to bring then the Kundalini yoga in because it's the same thing. We're balancing the moon and the sun energies when we practice yoga. The, um, the two main nadis, the Ida and Pingala nadi are the masculine and feminine nadis. So there's, and then we get into the subtle heart energy. We get into the more spiritual where you could talk about Shiva, Shakti, or Mary and Jesus, you know, the, 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 um, the more, the most subtle masculine and feminine. So these energies occur on all levels, the physical, the psychological, you know, Jung would call them the anima and animus, and they're all happening at the same time. One gets knocked out of rhythm, it's going to follow, and it's going to happen in the body, you know, and, and so that's, it's actually one of my favorite topics and something that in my, the book I'm currently writing, I go into in a lot of detail. If we are aware enough, we can tell, we'll be able to know when we are out of balance in any way. Um, yeah, let's talk about the rituals. But before I have to ask the question, what is a ritual? Ritual is, in my, the, my understanding, you know, you could think of, okay, I'm going to have my coffee. That's my morning ritual. But I'm talking um, a, a little bit deeper here. And the purpose of ritual since, since the beginning of time was for people to come back into alignment with the whole. So we have the same concept repeating. So rituals were performed to bring, if the individual got out of sync in, in any way, the ritual would be to come back into wholeness. And that could be anywhere from ancient rituals you know, having, um, not being able to conceive a baby or, or just many, many purposes, but ritual is, it's a process of, of re-engaging ourselves and reorienting ourselves with a greater whole, whatever that greater whole may be for the particular ritual. Would you like to talk about some of them, the most important ones, perhaps that we can practice every day? Yeah, let's just take a, I'll just take a couple. And I have to really commend the work of um, Stephen Borges, who is the father of the polyvagal theory. And it was in one of his articles that I, I read how he compared the, the um, vagus nerve, which is really, let's just for simplicity say, that's really what's controlling the, the balance in your body for now. And he said, you know, the, the rituals, and he, but he kept it very broad, like some things like vocalizations. So what I did is I took a couple of, of the ideas and I mapped them with Kundalini Yoga. And then I gave a couple of other examples. And probably the first one, the ritual is the creating sacred space. Because if you are in a, um, a fearful state, you know, whether it's the, just go, what's going on in the world, or maybe you have a very tense situation where you've lost your job, whatever the this, this situation, if you don't have a basic feeling of safety, uh, you cannot get very far in achieving a return to wholeness or that achieving that centeredness. So it's very important to, as we practice, you know, create that sacred space for yourself, even if it's, if it's just like three foot circle where your mat is, you know, just consciously, uh, create a space, maybe light a candle, and just separate this time as sep 
it's different than our ordinary time. This is sacred time for healing. And I would say almost every time I do that, I just sit down on my mat. My body knows, okay, it's time for yoga. It's time for meditation. It becomes so uh, second nature. There's just a, there's just a release just sitting down. So you create that sacred space. I think again, going back to the breath work, that is the first and most important thing you can do from a physiological uh, standpoint to calm yourself down. You will get immediate change of consciousness by shifting your breath pattern. Um, you know, slowing the breath down is the most primary, but also the long exhalations are very good for centering. They, they stimulate the um, parasympathetic, the rest and digest, and can bring you into a state of calm and balance. The mind will follow the breath. So as we breathe, the mind begins to calm down. So those are, those are two super important and super, I mean, relatively easy things that you can do. Is there another ritual that caught your attention, Valeria? Yeah, we talked about the meditation of prayer. Those uh, we talked about earlier, that's ritual five. This is an interesting one, um, the postures or asanas, you call it. Yes. Um, but we can learn them. Yes, you can certainly learn. I think that you know the tensions and the traumas, I believe, are held in the body. And I think that that's that's, you know, pretty well researched now. And so that's kind of my issue. Um, if people just want to do talk therapy, that's their business. But I think until I got my body involved and I moved and had the releases physically, there, there have been times when I've been in a, a public yoga class where, you know, there was, I was in a position and I just had an emotional release. I mean, it could, it could actually be embarrassing, but you know, that's, that's what it's there for. Something gets released. It's powerful. It's profound. And, you know, no need to talk about it. The body has the wisdom. When it's ready to let it go, it will let it go. Well, I'm wondering if um, dancing, would that be a form of, of release, emotional or trapped emotion uh, release? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, the, the rituals I gave were primarily, for example, they're the ones I use every day, the, the ones I'm familiar with. But it, that's where it's fun that, you know, everybody can explore, gee, what, what would be a good prayer for me? I also put in the Christian centering prayer because, you know, people may want to, to, to look in that direction or, you know, reading Sufi poetry. I mean, that, that's another way to get into an ecstatic state of mind. There are, there are so many ways and that's the beauty. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's paths are honored. And I have one more question about the sacred space. Do you think it's possible to create that space within? Yes, you could create it on a bus sitting with your eyes closed. Uh, yes, you could create it anywhere you're at. If you um, begin to breathe, you know, your select, there's many breathing patterns, but select even slow, deep breathing and then connecting with your heart center. You're dropping your awareness out of your head, coming down into your mind, your, from the mind to the heart, and then radiating that energy from your heart and creating a bubble around you and then even sending it out, out in all directions. That will create a sacred space around you uh, for sure. Oh, I like that. 
That is called uh, visualization or imagination? I would call that a visualization. Um, the term imagination means something a little bit different to me, but uh, and is very profound. To me, the, the imagination is actually when you when you tap into your heart center and it starts speaking to you in either images or symbols or feelings. So that it's certainly connected to what we're talking about. Yes, yeah, wonderful. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? Okay, so to the readers, learning to self-regulate your emotional response to stress takes time, practice, commitment, and patience. And so I designed this book to serve as a blueprint to get you started with learning to self-regulate your emotional responses using these ancient ritual practices. When you become less reactive to life's bombardment of stressors, anxiety also lessens its grip on you. So I end with that so that people know there is another way to live. And people who have come to me and have felt somewhat hopeless, watching them, the light bulb go off and say, wow, I've experienced connecting to my heart. I know I could do it now at any time I choose to. But like anything else, if it, you know, that feeling will drift if you don't keep practicing. Um, but so I'm offering encouragement to anybody who is feeling overwhelmed, stressed, high functioning anxiety, that it, it's a matter of really reclaiming your own power. And that's probably the most important part is that as we take responsibility for our own power, it's also, it, it begins the healing journey and that the body is going to heal itself regardless of what you know you you medications and that's a personal decision but the ultimate healing is within your control and your power when you learn to really balance your body in this in, in this way in these ancient ways true so i have a few more questions i call them final questions the first one is what is another word for healing i would say healing is is the return to balance, the return to completeness, the return to a body that's and mind that's in fully coherent form. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life in a human body? My hardest lesson, and it's one that I continue to work on, was getting out of my own head. I was living from the neck up for much of my life. And really recognizing that, wow, I'm, I'm disconnected. I've, I've really lost my meaning. That recognition was a turning point and the beginning of a, of a beautiful journey. You speak for me, for sure, and I'm sure for most of us. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Yes. And actually, you know, the coronavirus um, really got me thinking when it, when it began a few months ago is that, yes, I want to open my life more up to love and to being in the world in a more loving way and getting out there and getting my work out there, but also just personally and maybe, you know, having a little more fun sometimes too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Sense of humor, laughter. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And my last question is, 
What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Well, the first thing is that once you recognize that there is a beautiful mystery, light, life just takes on a whole new meaning. And it, it, um, the beauty of, of what's all around you just shines through in a totally different way. I, I believe that we really can change the world um, one heart at a time by connecting with our own heart and expanding that love and coherence outward. I think that this is a pathway to healing some of the real deep, long shadowed wounds we have personally and collectively. And the third thing I know for sure, I, I, I the third thing I know for sure is that we can heal from a lot more than we believe we can by, by self-love first and foremost, we can really change our life, our relationship with our life, ourselves, will then attract all new ways of being in the world. It's very reciprocal as we raise our own vibration. And again, you can measure that as directed in the book. It's literally measurable. We're going to be attracting higher vibrations to us and then really just climb out of whatever situations we're in. So true. Thank you so much for your, I would call loving wisdom and your presence in this podcast. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. I have one more technical question. Where can we find more information about you, your work, your books, products, services, and future projects? Thank you for asking. My website is howtorelievestressnaturally.com or you can just type in annetaylor.com, and with an E. And my book is available on Amazon. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Anne Rutberg-Taylor, please visit her website, howtorelievestressnaturally.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.